Tom, thank you for that introduction. It's great to be with you all today. And I don't know if, like most preachers, Tom is given to exaggeration uh, very often, but uh, I'm, I apologize. Instead of being in high cotton, you're in deep weeds. Uh, with me here this morning, and uh, we are here from Charlotte, North Carolina. We brought the weather. You're welcome. Um, and I actually have a, red, a redder-than-normal face from sitting out and enjoying uh, Bar Louie yesterday afternoon with some friends. Uh, my wife Angie is here. Uh, just just kind of say hi. Um, uh, I'm here to share the gospel of the Carolina Panthers with you uh, today. We, uh, we have Captain America, uh, our chief apostle, Luke Keekley, and Superman Cam Newton. Uh, okay, not really. Um, Although I'm fired up about that. <laughs> I'm so happy. Uh, it's like Tom with the St. Louis Cardinals. You, you just get him talking, like in a good season, it's just on. And we're like, can we get back to the meeting now? Um, it's great to be with you all. Uh, I do want to give you greetings from our denomination, the Evangelical Presbyterian Church. I know a number of you are newer to Green Tree as you've moved into this fabulous building recently. And we're a part of the EPC, the Evangelical Presbyterian Church, the denomination. I'm a passionate member of the EPC. I have been for a long time, uh, mostly because of the gospel of grace that we hold out, which I believe is most clearly seen through a reformed understanding of Scripture, that all is grace, that all that God requires, all that God wants from the men and women that he's created, he gifts us with in his son, Jesus. And so I'm a part of the EPC because of the gospel of grace. I'm also passionate about the EPC uh, because of the way that we live out the motto of our denomination. Uh, in essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. And in all things, charity in the Christian faith. And we, we tend to not get hung up in the EPC fighting over little teeny tiny matters of theology. Because we understand that there's a world that desperately needs to know they're loved by God. And to live inside of, inhabit uh, that love, we would say, Jesus said, abide in that love through Jesus. And so we, our, our motto really directs us uh, as, a, as a denomination. I'm also passionate about the EPC because of our commitment and momentum to be a fellowship of churches on mission. Local churches like Green Tree that are living on mission in our communities to love people. To love people whether they're hungry for God or whether they're hungry for food. And to love people through acts of mercy and ultimately with the good news of Jesus Christ. Even while within our four walls we all disciple one another to grow up more into the image of Jesus and be like him. Uh, so I'm honored, and I'm also really honored and happy to be here at Green Tree Church. Tom and I have known each other for so long, and I was only able to visit here first back in December. Uh, and so for the, on behalf of the EPC, I want to thank you, Green Tree Church, especially I've met some of the, the folks who were part of the original launch, uh, and then a lot of you are part of really a refounding here in, uh, right on Main Street. This is remarkable. And I want to thank you for two things uh, in our denomination. First of all, you're the 1%. <laughs> Uh, there's been a lot of talk about the 1% in America. Y'all are the 1% in the church. You, uh, you would be in the dictionary. If in the dictionary there was a, an entry for the ideal EPC church, y'all would be a picture there because you have babies. You're not sterile like 96% of American churches who never propagate, who never give new life to new churches. And so while you were worshiping in the high school and just trying to pull off church, man, can we, can we get the chairs up again this week? Is the custodian going to remember to show up even though maybe he's hung over and let us in to have church? Even in the middle of all that, you all gave yourselves away 
And you've started multiple other churches. And now that you're here, you're choosing already not to just glom in these walls and go, we got it now. You're already laying plans to start your next daughter congregation. Churches planting churches is how God has spread the good news of Jesus town to town, tribe to tribe, continent to continent for 2,000 years. But only 4% of U.S. churches will ever in their whole life plant new churches, which is God's intent. And you guys have done it multiple times, so you're the 1%. You, you're probably the 0.01%. And I just want to say well done, especially to you elders who choose the commitments of your resources and your attention as a church. I want to thank you for one other thing uh, before we kind of turn to God's word. I want to thank you for sharing your pastor, Tom, in leadership to our denomination. Uh, thank you, elders and staff and you congregation for saying yes when Tom was asked a few years ago to lead our church planting or church multiplication effort of our denomination. And he was asked that because of just who he is and because we realized six years ago, our denomination is stagnant when it comes to propagating new churches that are gospel-centered. We were going backwards, actually, in terms of starting new churches to reach new people. And so Tom was put in charge because of the witness of your church and, the, and of his life and his integrity and wisdom in ministry. Uh, and due to Tom's knowledge and his competence and his relational ability to lead a team, you've seen, you know that, um, church planting has now more than doubled in the EPC in the six years since he's led that. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. This is the way that we make the most generational impact, starting new churches, and you all are influencing that here in St. Louis County, but also around the nation and around the world through Tom's leadership. I've also come to enjoy him as a friend. Um, uh, I love his principled pastoral leadership, uh, his relational style. We went on a conference call, all these guys who don't have much time around the country, and we got one hour to do church planning business, and Tom makes sure we always go, hey, go around the horn, and how are you doing? Now let's pray for one another. I'm like, man, we've got business to do. Uh, and so thank you for that. Uh, I love his knowledge of wine. I'm trying to ramp up along with him, and I'm most encouraged, downplay, downplay that more, Okay. Edit next service. Uh, uh, um, and then um, I love, I'm comforted that there's another pastor in the EPC with a soft enough heart to cry almost every Sunday. Um, so I, I feel, I feel, okay, enough about Tom, let's get to Jesus. How about that? That would be good because we're here to worship him. We're here to follow him. We're a Christian church. We're here to follow Jesus. And it's good to meet like-minded people and be in your worship today. So, I don't know what age it was for you. It was about the third grade for me when I faced the question I'd never considered before. It's the question called the, the, the magic genie in a bottle question. You know it? It goes like this. If you had a magic lamp and a magic genie came out and offered to grant you one wish, one request, what would you ask for? You were asked that question at some age. I don't know what age. And as a third grader, I started to vex over this. I was on the bus in the third grade when, when this question was first asked. And I thought, oh, God, this is my one chance. This is a lot of pressure. What would I ask the genie for? I don't want to blow it. Do I ask for a new Atari 1600? Uh, do I ask for an unlimited supply of Pop Rocks uh, candy, right? Or Snapping Pops. I love those things. Or do I ask to never have to do my homework again in my life? My dreams were really grand as a third grader. They were high. I had my sets. But, but, but it, I don't know about you when that question was first asked. There's always a smart kid 
who, who like early on in life is always figuring out the angles. And, and in our context, that was Andrew on the bus. He was the one who first thought of it and said, I'd wish for a million more wishes. <laughs> and we were all in awe of Andrew's genius, you know, a million more wishes. Hey, uh, why didn't I think of that? Would you stand up? Would you turn to a neighbor and tell them two things you would have wished for from a genie in the third grade? Would you guys stand up and to two or three people around? In the third grade, the third grade. Okay, okay, all right, all right. That's good. That's good. Y'all can have a seat now. So, uh, so Tom didn't lie. He said y'all had to extend the period between the two services because you're so friendly as a congregation. You were telling the truth. You weren't exaggerating uh, in that instance. Okay, somebody out, somebody around you, like what was something interesting or trippy that they would have asked for a genie for in the third grade? A bike. Good old America. I want a bike. Exactly. She wanted to get her ears pierced in third grade. You were precocious. Okay. Wow. Wow. How about, how about another one? SpaghettiOs. A lifetime supply of SpaghettiOs. You know, Santa Claus brought cans of Star Wars shaped SpaghettiOs to my boys this year for Christmas in their stockings. And uh, they haven't eaten them yet. I don't know what the deal is. I might eat them myself. Well, today we're going to look at a story in the Bible of a man who faced basically this question. But instead of him, at, of genies and third graders, the story is about a blind man, a beggar. It'll be familiar to many of you who suddenly finds himself standing face to face with Jesus. And in this interaction, the most incredible thing happens. Jesus simply asks him this question. What do you want? And what do you want me to do for you? It's a really powerful question, particularly when you consider who it's being asked by. And that question changed this man's life forever. Now, I'm really honored to dig into God's word with you a little bit today. And when I only have one chance to, to preach somewhere, I make sure that it's a text that's about Jesus because we don't practice a religion. We're not here to build up an institution. We follow a person. We worship a person, our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ. Let us always be those who point one another and a world looking for love and leadership. May we be those who point clearly to Jesus. Well, if you know the Bible well, you know that Jesus loved a good question. In fact, Jesus often seemed more interested in asking good questions than in giving answers. Of the 183 questions Jesus is asked by others in the Gospels, Jesus only answers three of them directly. And if you ask me which three, I'll answer with a question. Which three do you think he answered? Because uh, I want to be more like Jesus and ask more questions, give less answers. In fact, if you exclude the questions from the parables, Jesus asks a staggering 307 questions in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. To me, that's profound to see it uh, up there in black and white. Uh, the, 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 these are the parts of the Bible, by the way, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that tell about Jesus' life on earth. 
Now, this can be an eye-opening experience if you've grown up thinking that Jesus is all about religion, about giving pat answers and solving people's dilemmas. Jesus actually, it turns out, through his question asking, seems much more interested in relationship than religion, much more interested in understanding others and help them understand themselves. Jesus didn't give out questions like pop quizzes to see who passed and who failed. His questions always invite us to take a more honest look at ourselves and a more honest look at who God is. And to take a closer look at Jesus and what really matters to him. And so the question that that I want us to talk about today is the question, by the way, that Jesus asked more than any other single question. He asked this question multiple times. What do you want? Sometimes as people, if you've grown up church boy like me, we're supposed to always have the answer, I want what God wants. (laughs) Jesus cares about your desires. He cares about your heart, your unique desires. So he says, not only what do you want, What do you want me to do for you? So the story is in Mark chapter 10, starting with verse 46. You can turn there. It's a brief story. Let me read it to us together. Then when they came to Jericho, as Jesus and his disciples, together with a large crowd, were leaving the city, a blind man, Bartimaeus, which means son of Timaeus in their language, was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many rebuked him and told him, be quiet. But he shouted all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and said, call him. So they called to the blind man, cheer up on your feet. He's calling you. Throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet and came to Jesus. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked him. The blind man said, Rabbi, I know what I want. I want to see. Go, said Jesus, your faith has healed you. Immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. I love this picture of Jesus here. Even though it's a familiar one, I, I can't get enough of it. And here's what I want to do today. We're going to walk a little bit verse by verse through, back through the story. And I want to draw out three simple lessons. One thing that we learn about God. One thing we learn about faith. And one thing hopefully we learn about ourselves, which may be different for each of us. So let's set the stage. Jesus and his followers, called here the disciples, have been on a long journey. They've been headed south from their headquarters in Galilee. That was northern Israel. Uh, And and they're headed south to uh, Jerusalem, the capital city, which is in the middle of Israel, just like today. And Jericho, this town they're in, is the last stop before they take a right on one more highway and they get to Jerusalem. And by this point in the journey, the disciples are like cranky kids in the back of the minivan. They're fight, if you look back over the previous chapter, they're fighting over who gets to ride shotgun next to Jesus. They're fighting over whose turn it is with the Nintendo. But it's not just the disciples who are tired. Jesus has to be exhausted too. He's been on a nonstop road trip, teaching every day, healing. We're even told as they leave the city, there's a crowd all around them. That's really stressful. Those of you who are introverts, just being in a crowd is stressful. And they're all focused on Jesus. And so the Bible doesn't tell us, but I sort of imagine as they're leaving Jericho and they're like, finally, it's just a day. We're going to get to Jerusalem, our destination today. I imagine the disciples are like, okay, look, Jesus, we know like you're the man and everything. No more stops. No more teaching. No more healing. No more letting the little kids climb up in your lap. You've done a lot. Let's just get out of here and get to our destination. And that's when it happened. Just as they're leaving the city, a beggar sitting on the side of the road starts calling out Jesus' name. And the disciples kick into full cover-up mode. Did you see it in the text? They're like, hey, somebody tell that guy to be quiet. 
We're trying to get some momentum. We just got started on our journey today. Can he see that Jesus has more important things to do? We got to get to Jerusalem. But the dude just gets louder. Jesus, I'm over here, son of David, right? It shows that even though they tell him to be quiet, he yells out, can you, Jesus, do you see me? And then the most remarkable thing happens. The Bible says Jesus froze in his tracks, verse 49. Jesus stopped and said, call him. The Greek word for stop there is exactly to stand still without moving. And he's fully stopped to pay attention and see this man. And he quietly says to the, to the disciples, call him to me. And so in the midst of all the noise, the crowd, the hustle, the chaos, Jesus stops everything. He stops and stands still for one beggar, one blind beggar. Why? Because he wants to show something to the disciples, to the crowds, and especially to Bartimaeus. He wants them to understand the heart of God the Father. That Jesus wants him to know that God the Father is a God who sees when Angie and I were living in Los Angeles for some years, we would monthly serve at a soup kitchen at our church for the homeless, Hollywood Presbyterian Church. And I heard the account of what a homeless man shared once at one of those meals. He said that every day he sits outside a Subway sandwich shop with his cup and his sign, homeless, please help. And, and this man said that some people would drop a few coins in, others would give him half a sandwich, but very rarely did anyone actually look at him. And he said it was incredibly lonely to be surrounded uh, by people but never be acknowledged. But then a big smile came to this man's face as he continued. And, and he told us about this one high school kid who passed by on his way to school every day. And the kid never gave him any money, never gave him any food. But every day this high school boy looked him in the eye, shook his hand, and said, Good morning, sir. And the man said it was the highlight of his day. And he called it the power of being seen. And I think that's what Jesus wants to show us here. Remember, Jesus came to earth to show us what God is really like. He came to accomplish redemption through the atoning sacrifice of his life laid down for us on the cross and his representative resurrection from the dead to secure for us eternal life. He came to do that work, but he came to show us who God is and what he's like. And he wants us to see here something about the heart of God. See, Bartimaeus was a nobody in this culture. He wasn't anyone important. He had nothing to offer. He was on the outside. And the fact that he had to beg every day suggests he didn't have any family to care for him. No relatives. He was at the bottom rung of the social and financial ladder. He was on the outside. He didn't fit in the system. The system did not work for him. The system barely acknowledged him. He was overlooked. Someone to be ignored. But that was until Jesus came to town. Jesus had this peculiar habit. You guys, many of you are very familiar with the Gospels, and you know this is a habit of his. I hope it's a habit of mine, increasingly. And he would just stop for those who were on the outside, stop for those in need. He would stop for those whom others had overlooked, those for whom the system didn't work. It's just how Jesus is. He had stopped, you'll be familiar, for a bleeding woman who had nowhere else to turn. She was an untouchable, and he touched her. He stopped for a father whose daughter had fallen deathly ill. He stopped for a soldier whose son was tormented by inner demons. He stopped for a leper, another untouchable, who needed his healing touch. He stopped for a friendless tax collector, a dirty, uh, corrupt businessman who had climbed a tree in hopes of getting just a glimpse of Jesus. 
This is a habit of Jesus. It's not in the red letters. It's in the, the text of his actions, his repeated habits. And I want to I live Jesus' habits, not just say Jesus' words. Why does Jesus stop? Because that's the kind of God he is. He's a God who sees. And so when you in this room, uh, you all look pretty nice this morning, by the way. But you know, when you feel overlooked, when you feel insignificant, when you feel misunderstood, when you have those times of no one gets me, maybe more often it's no one in my house gets me. I even feel alone here. Just know from Jesus that God, your heavenly father, sees you. One purpose for those of us who are Christians of living like Jesus and taking him up on his invitation to be someone who prays often and goes to a quiet place and is alone with God our Father daily through prayer and his word. One reason to take him up and live like Jesus in that way is to let God gift you with the power of being seen by the good God who loves you. Let him gift you with the power of being seen every day and that you launch out into your life to see others out of the power of being seen by him, by this good God who loves you. Let this fill your soul. And so we learn here that, that how we actually can tap into a God who sees us and what it can mean to us. But what does it mean for us to be those who follow Jesus? And we might even extend being seen to others like Jesus did that day. Well, I was privileged the first time I came here to meet with two of your members here at Green Tree. I don't know if they're here this morning, but Rich and Sharon McClure. I assume you know that two of your members co-chaired the Ferguson Commission. I thought, wow. And we spent a half day with them, and they just talked to a bunch of us EPC pastors about that experience. And first of all, I was impressed that it was uh, two uh, Christian leaders in your church and a Christian pastor in another church who were entrusted to co-lead the commission. And, and I was impressed when I heard them talk about it that they acted a lot like Jesus in our story today, that they started for weeks, maybe months, and they mostly asked question after question after question, which is like Jesus. And they listened and they listened and they listened to the community who had felt unheard. And they ask kind of in a way this question of Jesus, what is it that you want? And valued that. Uh, and valued it. Uh, and I wonder how much residents here have been able to do the same and follow the commission led by Christians uh, in, in our own lives. Because this is not just St. Louis. Uh, it uncovered, it wasn't a wound in the moment of what happened. It uncovered wounds that have been there in America, in all of our cities. And I wonder uh, if we can be like Jesus and ask questions first and listen. Uh, the McClure said that the economically challenged communities of St. Louis's townships, particularly the African-American communities, felt unseen. Of course, I'm putting that word here. Felt unseen, like no one saw, like the power structure and those, those uh, who the system worked for didn't acknowledge that they were being uniquely left behind in community resource allocation, or more specifically, the way some town governments were targeting them for resource raising. And, and, and it was seen by the commission, and it was elevated, and, and your legislature and everyone's wrestling with this now in a beautiful and powerful way, and I understand some laws have been changed. Tom and I, when I was here before, he invited me to lunch with the pastor of the predominantly African-American church across the street that's right behind us. I believe you all have met him. They grew up together. They went to high school together. And, and we went to Jason's Deli, and Tom modeled 
Jesus in this passage for me that day at Jason's Deli. Uh, he just kept asking his friend question after question. He was asking. He was listening. What was it like to grow up as a minority in Kirkwood? Because they're both natives here. What was it like when you encountered authorities here in St. Louis growing up as a minority? And Tom tells me that you all uh, believe that God put you right here on this piece of property, looking at Main Street here, and behind you perhaps a a, a street that may represent a a dividing line in the community to some, uh, that you all believe God put you here for a reason. Uh, I think that's beautiful. I think it's the providence of an eternal loving God that will be good for the discipleship of those in this congregation and good for your community. And so I love hearing that you intend to be a church who's like Jesus, who sees like Jesus, who comes to a dead stop every now and then and takes the time and lets those in this community who feel left behind, lets them feel and perceive, because that matters, that they are seen by people who follow Jesus. Uh, So I want to say well done to you as you begin that journey here in your new location uh, on a road that may may represent historically some division in the community. May you all be a bridge because you stop like Jesus and you see and you dare to keep asking questions. What do you want? And you dare to, to listen and I'm proud of how you're doing that. Well, let's get back to the story. Jesus stops and he tells the disciples, call that guy over here. And old Bartimaeus doesn't waste a second. You would have thought Bob Barker had just called his name on the prices right. Come on down. You're the next guy to get a private audience with Jesus. And so he, just, he throws his coat off and he jumps up and he does like a prices right dance. That's the, I think that's why his coat came off. There's a popular daily devotional book titled Jesus Calling. Anybody ever use that? People love it. I, I recommend it highly. It's really beautiful. Um, well, what if you and I treated Jesus calling his invitation every single day to pray to him and meet with him in God's word? What if we treated it the way Bartimaeus treated the invitation here? Like a price is right moment. (laughs) Mike Moses, come on down. Enjoy the personal presence of the living, loving God to start your day because the world has taken a chunk out of you yesterday And you need to be seen by the eternal God and refreshed of his image in you and refreshed of the presence of Christ in you through the Holy Spirit and of your identity as you are secure and you are loved and you have the mind of Christ and every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. Come on down and enjoy this this morning, Mike Moses. What if we did a little Price is Right dance on our way to have a moment with God because Jesus is calling every morning? In fact, I dare you, even if you live with other people in your home, tomorrow morning, when you open up your Bible, do a Price is Right dance, okay? And just, 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 just to be goofy. Um, wow. And what if, while we were picking up our Bible or our journal or devotional, we were like, who, me? Woohoo! he sees me. Wow. Uh, Mark 10, verse 49. So they called to the blind man, cheer up on your feet, he's calling you. And they're looking at their watches. Throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet. And you feel a bit of a drama here. Bartimaeus is standing before Jesus. The crowd goes silent. What's Jesus going to do? And Jesus asks this simple question. What do you want me to do for you? Bartimaeus responds, Rabbi, I want to see. 
Now, there's some intensity here uh, of this interaction. If we know something about blindness in ancient Israel, uh, there had been a lot of healers and miracle workers before Jesus. Uh, even some of the prophets had, had performed significant healings or miracles by God's power, but no one had given sight to a blind man. In fact, in John's gospel, they were no more naive then than we are today. You know, some of us can go, oh, isn't that quaint? They believed that people could actually be healed back then physically. They were, no, they were just as cynical, and they understood reality and natural law just like we do. In fact, the religious leaders in John 9 said this, nobody's ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. That can only be from somebody who's from God. In other words, people then understood just what they do today. Healing of blindness is something only God could do. And that's why Jesus' acts of healing were such a big deal. Uh, In fact, one day, Jesus' cousin John, John the Baptist, when he was in prison for pointing to Jesus, sent his disciples to ask Jesus, are you really the Messiah? Are you really the Christ? And Jesus' response in Luke 7, was, go back and report to John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive sight, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. And at this moment with Bartimaeus, the news about Jesus had spread like wildfire, and that's why there's crowds around him, because stories travel faster than feet. And long before Jesus had reached Jericho, stories about his healings, his care for the poor, his compassion for those in need on the outside had been heard, and Bartimaeus knew in the words of Eminem, the rapper, you know the rap, right? You only get one shot. Do not miss your chance to blow. This opportunity comes once in a lifetime. Woo! Uh, Tom told me he quotes Eminem all the time here. Is that, was that an exaggeration too? Uh, they're like, this is my one shot. Jesus is in town and this is my town. I can't go anywhere else. And so he's like, it's on. And so, right, he's calling Jesus and they try to make him quiet and he won't be quiet. He follows his desire, his want for God and his desire for himself to see. And the unthinkable happens and Jesus and his compassion and love stops and asks him, what would you like me to do for you? And the question goes to his heart. It's the only thing he's ever wanted, the one thing he can't do for himself. Jesus, I want to see. And Jesus responds, go, your faith has healed you. And I like the detail I hadn't really noticed before. It says, and he followed Jesus along the road. That's what he did with what Jesus gave him. He followed him. It's a remarkable story. And see, you and I can sometimes get all churchy on the faith thing. That somehow to follow Jesus or to have faith means that I can't have unanswered questions. Or that if I ever doubt or feel uncertain that somehow I don't really believe in Jesus or I'm not a Christian. The truth is, just me personally, I'm a crazy mixture of faith and doubt, trust and fear. It's all the more reason why I need Jesus daily. I need my Bob Barker moment to come on down and to be seen and refilled by the God who sees me. And I love this about this exchange. And Bartimaeus, I think, shows us something, that sometimes faith is simply having the courage to ask And Christians, some of us who follow Jesus for a long time, we may have given this over. And I want you to be reminded how often Jesus asks this question and others, and he wants to hear from you. Why does Jesus sometimes wait for us to ask? Well, because as the Bible says, he's gentle, he's humble at heart. And God's spirit is always near us in times of heartache, trouble, fear, and difficulties, but God never forces himself upon us. His spirit is gracious, he is enduringly patient, and he's willing to wait and ready until we're ready to ask. 
Asking builds personal relationship between the asker and the giver. I have two sons, and when they each were learning to ride a bicycle for the first time, I already knew they needed me to hold the seat while they were learning to pedal. But it gave me joy as their father that they asked, Daddy, would you help me do this? (laughs) Yes, son. (laughs) And so if God is so gracious and willing to consider to see me and to consider my need, what is it that holds me back? What is it that holds you back that keeps you from asking? I, I, I think it's maybe in these last three words. Do for you. What do you want me to do for you? Because I'm kind of like your typical three-year-old. Maybe you are too. I don't want anybody to do for me. I want to do for me. Mom, I want to pour my own juice, even if it spills all over the table. Mom, I want to tie my own shoes, even though you're going to have to cut them off with scissors. We already know that. Right? Mom, I want to put the toothpaste on myself. Right? And we know where that goes, the mirror and the counter. Moms, we're sorry for all that we put you through. Uh, but in one way or another, we're all like a three-year-old living in grown-up bodies. It's hard to let someone else do for you. And that's what's interesting about this question. This isn't the first time Jesus had asked someone, what do you want me to do for you? One of the times he asked that question was when a rich and successful young man came to Jesus, boasting of his compliments and his morality And Jesus said, what do you want me to do for you? But the young man only wanted to do for himself. And so he ended up walking away, unlike Bartimaeus. Another time, two brothers came to Jesus, and this was just before this moment, and they wanted to be put in charge. They wanted to be made rulers so others might serve them, but Jesus refused to be their magic genie, and they also missed out. But Jesus kept asking, like apparently everywhere he went, what would you like for me to do for you? And if nothing else that we take away, I hope that you might meditate on that question and hear Jesus asking you, because he asked it so often, it's obviously a question for you too. What do you want me to do for you? Can you internalize that and hear Jesus asking you this week? And Jesus comes to Bartimaeus, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man responds with childlike faith, and his eyes were open. Well, When I was 19 years old, I had one of my own uh, Bartimaeus experiences with Jesus. It was during my first year of college. And man, I was totally and completely girl crazy that year. I was a fraternity guy, and I think I set a record for asking girls out. Um, Not a record for them saying yes, but I wasn't shy to ask. If she had a pulse and less chest hair than me, I was asking her out. Uh, and no boyfriend. And by the end of the freshman year, end of my freshman year in school, um, I was like tired of this, uh, like uh, of trying to do for myself. I got tired of that. And I began to really uncover the little bit deeper longing of someone to share life and fun and spiritual growth, growth with in a meaningful way. So over that summer, my buddy and I kind of had a, 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 a really heart friend. We decided to quit try, trying so hard and do for ourselves. And we sort of prayed a prayer together of, God, I've done everything I can to make this girlfriend thing happen. Um, And and you know my desire to share share life and fun and spiritual growth with a woman who loves you. Uh, And in that prayer, it was as though we heard a whisper of the Holy Spirit saying, Mike, what do you want me to do for you? And I knew without hesitation as I meditated on that, Lord, I, I want you to make clear whom I should pursue to date when it's time for that. Because clearly, you've put that desire in my heart. But I'm going to quit thrashing about and asking a bunch of girls out like sampling flavors of Ben and Jerry's. I'm going to quit that, and I'm going to let you make it clear. 
And so we helped each other to actually picture ourselves. Have you ever done this in prayer? Uh, Placing what we wanted in Jesus' hands. As though he asked it of Bartimaeus. And summer went on and I actually did quit being manic about asking girls out. And I kind of forgot about the prayer. And when I arrived sophomore year, I was hanging out with this cute girl named Angie Insinius. And later on that year, she became the clear answer to my prayer. And it was as if God had graciously, patiently been waiting for me to surrender that specific want to him. What do you want? And what do you want me to do for you in that part of your desires, your heart, your life? And so I want to end by giving you the same opportunity. In just a moment, I'm going to ask you to close your eyes and bow your heads and create just a moment of sacred space for one another. And maybe there's something in response to Jesus' clear, repeated question, something you want to ask of God. Maybe it's for you that you, God would help you to know that he sees you and you matter to him daily. Maybe you want the courage to ask him to be your God, for Jesus to be your Savior. Or maybe there's something specific in your life that you're tired of trying to do for yourself and it's wearing you out, jamming you up. And you just want to ask Jesus, I want you to do that for me in your time and your way. So let's pray. Would you just be attentive to God, the Holy Spirit, in your posture for a moment? Maybe both feet on the floor and both hands on your thigh or your knee. And just begin by taking a deep breath. And would you picture Jesus standing before you just the way he was in front of blind Bartimaeus that day? Would you do your best to picture him there in front of you? You've been summoned over there. It's your come on down moment. And would you hear Jesus ask you clearly his most common question? What do you want? Would you answer that to him if you can? Would you hear him finish the question? What do you want me to do for you? Would you tell him quietly in your own heart? And would you carry the question with you this week? And if what you want him to do for you involves placing something of your life in his hands instead of yours, you may want to mark that physically by turning your hands over on your thigh, palms up, to say, I surrender this to you. I want you to do for me instead of me doing for myself. I trust you, Jesus. Jesus, we thank you for the gift of prayer that your spirit is never far from us, and that we can turn to you in our need. And we thank you that on the cross you did the one thing all of humanity could not do for itself. And that by dying our death, atoning for our sin, resurrecting from the dead in triumph over sin, evil, and suffering, you have made possible the gift of new life. We receive it and celebrate that again. We love you. Like Bartimaeus, we will follow you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.